this, this kind of started for me about um, five months ago, I think now. And uh, I was having a, uh, the, the background to this, I was having a, a day of prayer for the rural church in the UK. And um, as I was having my usual uh, readings from the Bible that morning, which were kind of, um, the way I do it is I work my way through the Old Testament and quite not connected, I work my way through the New Testament. So you can have any kind of, any two readings on any one day. And it just so happened that as I was reading my morning readings that day, both of the passages were talking about leaving Babylon. I thought, that's really weird. I wonder what that's all about. So I decided to kind of look at it a bit closer. And um, it has all sorts of applications, but I felt that um, just before, in the period between now and Easter particularly, I think it's really important for us at the moment. So I want to read you both the passages and then kind of go from there. Um, The first was from Isaiah 48. And it says this, leave Babylon, flee from the Babylonians, announce this with shouts of joy and proclaim it, send it out to the ends of the earth and say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and water gushed out. So that uh, context is um, Isaiah, uh, depending on what you think or where you think or when you think Isaiah was, but it's Isaiah looking forwards to a time when God's people would be in captivity, as he prophesied, but there would come a time after 70 years when the captivity was over and God would allow them to return home. So God's people had been rebellious, they'd been very, very idolatrous, they had worshipped other gods, they had not taken any notice of the prophets, and there came, came a time when God said, enough's enough, um, you're out of here. And basically, uh, the Babylonians invaded, um, firstly the northern kingdom, then the southern kingdom, 150 years or so later. And um, many hundreds of thousands of people were taken to Babylon, where now modern-day Iraq, by the Babylonian Empire, as it was then. They had a policy of taking out all the elite, all the leaders, all the people who were in any way influential or good or moneyed, displacing them completely, taking them to Babylon, resettling them in Babylonian cities and towns where they effectively were slaves, and then um, putting some Babylonian folks into where the others had left. And so they completely destroyed the culture, the the nationhood, if you like, or or the people they had been enslaving. So not not a good situation, but God's people went into Babylon. The only bit of light was uh, through Isaiah, God had said that in 70 years' time, under someone called Cyrus, who no one could even have prophesied would be even a name then, you would return. And and in fact, that is what happened 70 years later. However, this is a point where Isaiah is saying, looking forward and saying, there'll come a time when you leave Babylon, flee from the Babylonians, come out of there. And then Revelation 18, this is, as you know, very nearly the end of the Bible. And in this case, Babylon, Babylon is a kind of a type Um, which is being ascribed to the city of Rome. What John the Divine, as he's seeing this revelation, is saying is that Rome is Babylon. It's the evil city. It's the city which is full of adulteries, full of economic manipulation and power, full of military power. And it's doomed, basically. Rome was doomed. And so um, the prophet is saying this, Revelation 18. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. Now, I don't want to focus on the Revelation bit today. I want to focus particularly on the Isaiah bit. But the sense that struck me that morning and is with me still is there comes a time when we can and should leave Babylon. There's a time to leave. 
There's a time to go. We are free to go. We're free to either walk out of captivity or walk out of the doomed city. And I was reading this in a context where people often describe the rural church at the moment as being in exile, where the church is diminished, it's, it's shrinking fast, it's mostly elderly, it has little capacity, little power, and is under the domination of a completely different culture, to which the church is mostly irrelevant other than a building, sometimes a vicar, and an occasional service. So... I'm used to literature which says the church is in exile. So this is speaking to me and saying to me there comes a time to move out of that exile threshold. There comes a time when we're to leave Babylon and show there is a way home that isn't um, what was there before. And I'll say more of the, about that in a minute. Now, a definition of exile is this. Exile is when a person or persons are banished from their homeland be it city, state, or country, they are, said to being, they are said to be sent into exile. And an exiled group or person, and this is really key, I think, are refused permission to re-enter and may be threatened with death or imprisonment if they return. So it's not just that you've been sent away, it's that you're not allowed home. Yeah? So it's a bit like saying, um, you know, uh, Romania, which I used to go to a lot, um, was basically an outpost of the Roman Empire in the first and second centuries. And they used to put all their criminals in Romania, all the people that were disagreeing with the state. And most of them were Christians. So Romania started off as a Christian nation with lots of exiled Christians, which is why Romania is speaking Latin in a Slav sea, is the way they put it. So all the countries around are Slavic, but in the middle, there's this Latin island, because they were mostly, it was an outpost of the Roman Empire, and they were all Latin-speaking when they were put there. That's why the history is still now affecting that nation this day. But they were not allowed home. If they came back to Rome, they would be executed. Exile was permanent. Okay. Now, I want to read you one or two things from some scholarly people, which amplifies what I've been saying about the church being in exile. Um, this is from Walter Brueggemann and Michael Frost, basically saying that the experience of exile goes beyond simple physical dislocation. For us, it's a cultural and spiritual condition where one feels at odds with the dominant values of the prevailing cultural ethos. Put simply, people can feel as if they are in exile with ever, without ever being cast out of the land. In other words, we can be in cultural exile. We can feel that we're now the odd ones out, that we're the strangers, and that the culture around us does not agree with us anymore and would try and censure what we're doing. Yeah? So it doesn't mean we've been sent to another part of the world. It means that in our own land, we've become aliens and strangers to the dominant culture. And that dominant culture is trying to, very subtly and sometimes not subtly at all, force us into its way of thinking and its way of doing things. And we are, in that sense, in exile in a foreign country. So what hit me forcibly, as I said, was it can be different. We're not to be resigned to managing decline, which is often what's happening in the church in the rural areas at the minute, and expect not to see a better day. We're not to accept captivity. Our call is to walk out of that captivity and to re-establish Christian communities, colonies of heaven, with the culture of the kingdom of heaven. That's what church is. And change, and by the grace of God, change the culture around us rather than letting it change us. If you follow Isaiah through the next few chapters, there's a few things that really help us to think about what God's saying to us here. So the first thing is in Isaiah 48, verse 20, the bit I read, Jacob was redeemed and therefore free to go. What God's saying to them is, look, when my people came out of Israel, it was a long way home. 
But did I provide for you in the desert? Yes. Did you have food? Yes. Did you have something to drink? Yes. Were you protected on the way home? Yes. Did you get back to the promised land? Yes, you did. And he's saying the same can happen again. Hundreds of years later, you can walk out of Babylon. It was a long trip home from Babylon to Jerusalem. It was three months plus on foot. But you can do this again. I provided for you the first time. I can provide for you again. Isaiah 51 says this, The Lord will comfort Zion. Look with compassion on her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden and her wasteland like the garden of the Lord. In other words, the, the ruins that are left behind can once again find life when you return home. Isaiah 52, shake off your dust, free yourself from the chains on your neck. Depart, depart, go out from there, come out from it and be pure. You won't leave in haste or go in flight, for the Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. So what he's saying to them through this, this series of passages in Isaiah, the latter part of the 40s to sort of mid-50s, is this. There comes a time when you have to go home. You can't just put up with it anymore. You can't live in compromise anymore. This isn't an invitation from me. I am commanding you to return home. And just like the Israelites coming out of Egypt, just like Nehemiah later when he did go home, I'm promising you that as you go home, you will be protected. You have my permission to go home, my command to go home. You will be protected as you move home and you will be provided for in the desert. There's a lovely George Ling's phrase which says this, as with the exile, the future will arise from the ruins of the past and the arrival of outside resources. Yeah. So the future of Jerusalem would arise from the wreck of the previous city that the Babylonians had damaged extensively, but new resources arriving under Ezra, Nehemiah and others when they eventually returned home. I think the same is for us in the countryside. I won't dwell on that too much today. That's more about next week. But it's really true that what we're looking around now is the remnant of a church that was once much stronger, much more influential, much more central to the life of the communities they're in. What we're seeing now is a pale remnant of what was once there. The influence of God through his church is a, a very small percentage of what was once there. And what can change it is not abandoning what's left, but by returning alongside to bring something completely new as outside resources go in. And I think that's partly what God is saying to us. You need outside resources alongside the wreck, alongside the ruins to bring about the new. Okay, more about that next week. <clears throat> but for now, as I said earlier, there's, there's, there's four things I want to say now. Okay, the first is it. It's not about physically leaving. Unless, you know, oh, I should have said, by the way, I, I spoke on this once about leaving Babylon and somebody thought I was on about leaving Brexit. I mean, thought about leaving Europe, <laughs> which kind of took me in another direction. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? I'm talking about spiritual and cultural stuff today. So it's not about physically leaving. It's about getting us out of the culture, which, which has lots of effects on us that we're not aware of, and, the, and getting the culture of us out of us where it's not the culture of the kingdom of God. When I first came back from Australia as a 15-year-old, I went to this boarding school in Surrey, and they said to me, can you play rugger? And I said, uh, yeah, I can, because I'd been captain of the rugby league team in my school in Australia. So I thought, oh, great, come on then, Pommy, or Aussie, I was then Aussie. I was Pommy in Australia, I was Aussie when I got back here. So I got dressed up in the right kit, and we went onto this huge pitch, and we went out on the pitch and the game started and I thought, what are they doing? 
because they were doing funny things like lining up at the side of the pitch. And there was far too many people on the field. And the, the, the sort of scrum thing was thousands of people rather than the few I was used to, because no one had told me there were different kinds of rugger, right? Different types of rugby. I had no idea rugby union existed. <laughs> I'd, I'd been in Australia since I was six. I've been playing rugby for a few years. The culture was different and I was caught by it. And it's only when something like that happens that you realize it sometimes. Another example of being caught by the culture is, is or, or show how much you're, you're shaped and conditioned by the culture, is about three weeks ago, Jane, as in um, our wonderful uh, coordinator person, uh, rang me to say, there's an archdeacon trying to get hold of you urgently. And uh, this archdeacon from Birmingham had emailed Jane and phoned Jane saying that he needed to get hold of Pete Atkins as a matter of urgency, right? Now, in my life, a matter of urgency is someone's about to commit suicide, someone's dying, you know, I can remember people with knives behind doors at the police, they come and take it off them. That's what I think is urgent. So I thought, oh, what's going on? I wonder if one of you were in trouble in Birmingham. I had no idea what was going on. So I rang this archdeacon. He said, ah, oh, yes, 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 thank you so much. I was wondering if you could help lead a learning community in three weeks' time. <laughs> three weeks, that's urgent. Anyway, so it was like just a different culture. Do you see what I mean? What, what we think is normal is maybe not at all what other people think is normal. And what tends to happen over time is that our norms can be eroded by the culture that we live in. Culture is something we, we swim and breathe in. You don't have to think about it, you're just in it. But you don't actually know when it's compromising your Christian values sometimes. Sometimes it's overt, but sometimes it is not. So it's really pervasive, is culture. We don't know we're in it. And trying to move from it sometimes can be really difficult. And I think in most cultures, if you put Christians into any culture, Two things happen at the same time, and they should happen. One is there's things of that culture which Christians can affirm and say, that's really good. I love that part of the culture. That resonates with the kingdom of heaven. But there'll be other parts of the culture, almost always, which you've got to challenge, where you say that's nothing to do with God or his kingdom. We're going to challenge that. Okay, so that's the usual Christian response. Some things we affirm, some things we challenge. It's all persuasive, but pervasive. What, what I think, though, can happen is we get inoculated to some of the things in the culture. We kind of put up with them in a way that we wouldn't have some time ago, or once, sometimes we did like a wake-up call to say, are you really putting up with this now? Okay. So, uh, just silly examples, not silly perhaps, but examples. I'm inoculated to things that I was once much more shocked at. So things like F-words on movies, or depictions of sex, whatever kind, on movies, you know. I, I put up with it now, and I think, oh, maybe it'll go away and there's a better bit coming, or, you know. Whereas before, I would have just switched it off immediately and said, I'm not watching that. And, and that's, just, that's just one example, you know. There, there are things that I think we've compromised on without realizing it. I'm looking at Frank now about the whole abortion issue. I was much more red hot about abortion. It goes in phases like that because it's such a tiring thing to keep fighting over decades and decades. It becomes a part of society which we get to a point where we think, oh, it just happens that someone else is to fight. You know, at the minute, sexual ethics, gender issues, all kinds of things, maybe we're compromising in a way that we shouldn't, or not speaking up in the way that we should, or putting up with things, because we're pressed in on by a culture that expects certain ways of thinking and behavior, which may not at all be what God expects of us. So, we've got to move out. We've got to leave Babylon. Each of us have a, some, have a response to make, I think, in that. 
By the grace of God, the next chapter is Isaiah 53, at the heart of which is a suffering servant and a wonderful depiction, 800 years before it actually happened, of Jesus' death on behalf of all of us. And it's so interesting. Basically, he prophesied, he, the suffering servant, he is exiled from the land of the living. He is taken away from a world that he created. He is, he is executed and descends into death for three days before he is brought back from exile in his resurrection. And it says clearly in that passage that he bears our iniquities. He is our way home. We would never leave spiritual exile if it hadn't been for what Jesus has done. The enemy, evil, sin, death, want to separate us from ever for the land that we truly belong in. The enemy is trying to send us into exile and never allow us home. And the only way we can go home is because Jesus came into that place and broke its bounds and broke through sin and broke through death and broke through evil and now shares with us the possibility of returning to, to our true home in him forever. That's the really good news in this chapter. It's the fabulous bit at the heart of it, really. But it's something we've got to stay in. I think most of us default gradually to the compromise to the land that we were once, we pulled back into Babylon without realizing it. And we need wake up calls, we need fire, we need the purity of the God and his Holy Spirit in us and on us to keep us away from that. Oh, you are a lovely lady, thank you, Jane. It's not in your job description, but I love it, thank you. Excuse me a minute. <laughs> do, you, do you see what I'm saying about this? I don't know if you've experienced the same, but you can drift from where you really want to be. Okay. Another quote from St. George the Lings, who better. He's, he wrote a book called Encounters with Exile, and I'm quoting from that. If this parallel, i.e. us as a church being in exile in the West, has any validity, then one key spiritual message is it's in repentance, not reorganization, that precedes restoration. It's trust and faith, not tactics and fads, that usher in what God can do. If we're to move out of exile, we've got to start with our own individual repentance and asking God to take off us any baggage that we're carrying, any parts of this culture that are not of him. We've got to be separated from the things that are pulling us back to captivity. You know, traditionally in the church, Lent was a great time for doing that, and I'm going to suggest we do the same. Excuse me. The main features of Babylon, which were so contrary to the spirit of God and to the kingdom of God, were firstly force, violence, power, military power. If you disobey them, it was off with your head or you're impaled. It was an absolutely vile kingdom. They say the roots of IS, of Daesh, are in the ancient kingdom of Babylon. That's where they say it comes from in terms of their practices. The kingdom of God is about humility and suffering, suffering for the truth often. And remember Jesus' words, my kingdom is not of this world. We are not there in force or violence or military power. That is not the part of the kingdom that we want to be part of. Secondly, it was a place of wealth and prosperity and world economics, same as Rome later on. And I just want to say to us today, you cannot serve both God and money. Thirdly, it was a place of idolatry. It was a place of human wisdom rather than God's wisdom. And aren't we in a place now where it's all about relativity and relativism rather than the absolute truth that God brings? 
the truth that is out there is if, it's, if it feels right, it must be right. If it feels good, it's okay. There's a default to how it feels rather than to the absolute truth review, re revealed by the Bible. We've got to move away back into the truth. And there was often a blasphemous religious system, a mix of occult and sex, really. A lot of prostitution going on. Whereas in our kingdom, in the kingdom of God, it's about worshipping the Lord our God in purity. So I, I think, I'm not saying we're a horrible, sinful lot, though we are all sinners. But I am saying that I think the message today is we need to, each of us, ask God to free us up from the ways in which we have been polluted or being pulled back towards captivity rather than being of the kingdom of God and holiness and righteousness only. The importance of it is this. There's a lots of importance, obviously, that we're in the right kingdom. But another way of looking at it is this. They were going to have to travel back across the desert. And many times in Scripture, God's people who are asked to travel back across the desert are asked to travel light. They are to prepare to go. Do you remember Joshua, three days before they moved across the Jordan, he said, in three days we'll be moving across the Jordan, so begin to get your supplies ready and strike camp and we go. Do you remember when the, uh, when the Israelites left Egypt, they had just enough time to bake some uh, un unleavened bread and so forth and take a few things with them, some Egyptian gold and that, but they didn't have a long time to prepare. We're the same now. These people were the same. They had a bit of time to prepare. So when Nehemiah came back and Ezra came back and they brought thousands with them, they had time to prepare before the trip across the desert. But they had to know that what they were carrying was just enough because it's a long way home. And I think it's the same for us. I think one of the things we need to be praying is that we only carry the stuff we should carry, only carry the stuff that's going to help us get through this next season of life, both individually as a church. So we don't carry baggage, things that we think we might need and we really won't. It's really important that we do that. The third thing is that not all returned home. Probably a minority of those who originally went into captivity eventually returned to Jerusalem. Maybe like 10%, maybe more. Because after 70 years, you got used to it. And you're comfortable. And you don't want to move. Your kids are there. Your grandkids are there. You might have married a Babylonian family. You might be quite happy worshipping the Jewish God on a Sunday, or it would be a Saturday, and someone else on a Monday. Do you see what I mean? We can, we can live in compromise without really knowing that we are. And we have to review that. We have to say, okay, if we're going to go home, we need to be free of, a, of an alien culture. And I think it's something I've got to, a question I've got to ask, and each of us in the room have got to ask, is are we comfortable in the culture that we're in in a way that we shouldn't be? Do we need wake-up calls? Do we need to walk away from some of the things we're into? Are there things we should challenge? Are we prepared to take that long route home? There's a thing going on in Bardi at the minute where the group that Sarah, Sarah Grant and Shona lead of, of young mums who've either become Christians or post-alpha and thinking about it or whatever in the last few months. And... Um, They've kind of agreed that they're going to spend time just listening, on God, listening to God and waiting on him. But they've also very courageously agreed in advance that they're going to do it, whatever he says, even if they don't like it and they don't, want it, don't know what it is in advance, which I think is really cool. They basically you know, said to each other, we'll do what he asked us to do before we know what he's asked us to do, which I think is really, really brilliant. But I think we need a bit of that, all of us, really, which is we will obey the Lord our God, wherever that takes us. So the last thing is about prayer practices for all of us, I think, about the way we're going to handle this. 
I'm not going to suggest anything really in terms of what you do or I do other than some questions we may ask God. But I do think it would be really good if all of us spent the, the season of Lent, because it's highly convenient and it starts a week on Wednesday, I think, <laughs> just being before God and just asking him some questions. Questions like, or yeah, requests, please can you purify my heart? What of this culture is clinging to me that you want me to be free of? What am I carrying that I don't need for my life ahead? Those kind of questions. And expect him to answer. I don't expect it will be a comfortable time. But I think it's really important. Now, when I got to this point in my, so what I was going to say to you this morning, I got kind of stuck, really. Because I thought, well, I never know how to end sermons anyway. But I really got kind of stuck. And... Um, God helped me out this morning. <laughs> uh, you know, I told you earlier, the way I read the Bible is this. I, I read my way through the Old Testament, and I, I, I do it the lazy way. So rather than read a chapter at a time, I go with a heading at a time. Otherwise, I get too much to think about. Okay, So I just go with a heading at a time. Same with the New Testament. So this morning, my uh, morning reading was Ezekiel 37, which is one of our foundational scriptures as threshold. I think I must have started the Old Testament in order to get to this point today, roughly three years ago. And I could never have predicted it would be this morning that I would arrive at it <laughs> completely. Un it's at least 700 pages ago that I started, and there's lots more than one uh, day's reading on some of those pages. And Ezekiel 47 says this, The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east, and the water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar, brought me out through the north gate, led me round the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits. Then he led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, in a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river, and when I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the sea. Where it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live there wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish, because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh, so that where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Englaim. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. The swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fall, uh, fail. Every month they will bear because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. So the picture here is one of the temple, the temple that... see. Ezekiel's in exile, right? He's in this exile that Isaiah prophesied. He was one of the first groups of the southern kingdom to go into exile. And so what he's seeing is beyond the exile when God is calling them home. And a, figuratively, a figurative rebuilding of the temple. And at the heart of it, he sees the throne of God in this temple. And under the throne comes this amazing river of life, of clear, beautiful, holy, living water, which goes down through the desert and turns everything green. 
So you get fish in the fresh water and you get trees either side, picked up again in the last chapter 20 of Revelation, you get these fantastic things of trees on either side where the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations and the fruit are to, are to feed God's people. I first, I found that passage in relation to the starter threshold 25 years ago, walking through Nettleham one day. And basically, as I looked at the beck, suddenly in my mind's eye, I saw the beck springing, uh, spreading into many, many tributaries downstream rather than upstream, which is not what rivers usually do until you get to an estuary, right? So rivers have lots of tributaries come into one and then go off. This was the opposite. And there was a picture in my head, and I thought, I've seen that somewhere in the scriptures. And I found it in Ezekiel 47. And it became one of our founding things that what God wants of us as a church whoever, whatever threshold becomes, is basically to be so close to God that there's a river of life that flows from his throne in us, through us, down into the desert, turning everything green. That will not happen unless we're pure and holy, like God. Do you remember Psalm 84, where it says, I'd rather stand on the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. It's exactly the same picture. It's a picture of people on pilgrimage, marching, walking across the desert to God's dwelling place. And as it goes, as they go through the valley of Baca, a place of weeping or a place of balsam or a place of desert, depending on how you interpret it, it goes green. It's about as we walk, then what goes round, what is round us becomes fertile and lives. And I thought, you know, I've seen some of this in the last 25 years. When we started 25 years ago, we were in Nettleham, only in Nettleham, as far as I remember. Paul might correct me. But now we're in 20 different villages. I've seen streams of life go into lots of different places. And we've got to make the most of each of those. We've got to bring life wherever we are. And it's so important that we start off, and that's my message today, really, with, with ourselves. So my encouragement is this that each of us individually use the season ahead between now and Easter to, as far as we can, be freed from the culture that we're in. We don't know, like me coming onto that rugby field, had no idea that I'd drifted off from the culture of this country, that we don't know some of the ways in which we're taffled up with the culture of Babylon. We don't, some things are obvious, but many things won't be. So what I'm challenging myself and all of us this day is to have the courage to ask those kind of questions. Firstly, ask God to, for each of us to purify our hearts. Secondly, to ask the question courageously, what of this culture is clinging to me that you want me to be free from? And thirdly, what am I carrying that I don't, live, don't need for my life ahead? Not everybody returned from Babylon. It's your choice. It's my choice, whether we take this route or not. But I do commend it to us. I think it's part of what God wants for us at the moment. I think he wants this river of life to flow more and more powerfully. Remember George's thing about the new will arise from the ruins of the past and new resources. We are part of the new resources. We are part of what God's doing in these communities. But we need to be fit for purpose in his hand. And we need to be as close to him as we can be. The good news is, A, Isaiah 53, that it's possible to be freed from all sin and all evil. The second bit of good news is no one went home on their own. They did it together. They went in groups. They had each other. So that's what next week's about. Okay. So just pray. Father, I pray you do take us on this journey. Those who want to come over the next month or two, I pray that each of us do have the courage to ask you to free us up from the things that are of the wrong culture and of the wrong kingdom that we haven't really noticed, that we don't really know.
Purify our hearts, Lord God. Show us where there's stuff that's clinging to us that we can't see and make us fit for the journey that lies ahead, taking off us the baggage we no longer need. Help us to take this route with you. Amen.